You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Hey everyone, this is Chris Spangle, host of We Are Libertarians, and I'm on the road this week. I traveled to Washington, D.C. for the Students for Liberty's LibertyCon. Lots of great speakers, got to see in the flesh people like Justin Amash and David Bowes, and I'm going to bring you some of the interviews that I did with students. I'm going to bring you some of the sessions, and I'm going to keep you updated on my travel because it was one heck of a trip. So let's get started. This is the first of my travel log, and this was recorded on Friday morning as I was racing to get a flight after my original one got canceled. As I referenced in my travel log in part one, I met two students from North Carolina that I ended up traveling with. We recorded an update to the Patreon group via Facebook Live, this audio, as we headed back to Philadelphia from Wilmington, Delaware. Hey, everybody. It is uh, Chris Spengel live from Wilmington, Delaware, with my travel companions. Introduce yourselves. Hi, I'm Caitlin. I'll let you hold the phone. Okay. Um, so we are in Delaware right now, and yesterday was the worst day in travel history. To say the least. To say the least. <laughs> so, so we, we all landed in Philly around the same time. And I met Caitlin in the train... Where were we? Uh, we were in the train station. Yeah, Philadelphia train station. Trying to get to the other train station for an Amtrak. And what... The airport train station. Right. Where are you guys trying to go? We were trying to go to Long Island, New York. <laughs> All right. Now... I'm from Wilmington, North Carolina. So they didn't know it, but I referenced it yesterday. So we get on the tram. We, we had another guy named... Austin, who I thought was like your boyfriend or your brother. Oh God! <laughs> who's, who's your brother? I would hope uh, brother is more understandable, but I hope that you wouldn't think I'd go that low. <laughs> <laughs> so this guy, he he was helpless. He was probably about thirty, and slick back hair, suit coat, looked like a hipster. So I thought he was going to Liberty Con. I thought he was a libertarian, and that they might be going to the same place. And it turns out she picked him up. He followed her like a lost puppy because he was so helpless. Now, you're... How old are you? I am 20. And Sierra's 18. And so this guy, like, I thought they were together. It turns out he just started following her and was like, yeah, I'll go to Amtrak too and see if we can get a train out after all the flights have been canceled. Because if you didn't know what was going on, basically it was like a giant snow hurricane. And... I meet them in the kiosk. It doesn't work. We all sneak onto a train. We get a free train ride. That was about the only thing that went right yesterday. Oh, yeah. that was The only good part of the day was not paying six seventy five for that plane ticket, <laughs> yeah. for the train ticket. <laughs> so we get to the Amtrak station. We're standing there like lost tourists, the three of us, and Sierra walks up to us because she was lost too, and she asked where the Amtrak was. So we're walking, and... She, Basically, here's how it went. Caitlin goes, uh, so where are, you, where are you coming from? North Carolina. That's my Sierra impression. <laughs> North Carolina. And she goes, oh, that's where I'm coming from. Where are you going to? Long Island. Oh, me too. Where do you go to school? And they go to the same college. They live in the next town over. On the same flight. On the okay. same flight. And they met, basically... In the Philadelphia 30th and Penn train station. Yeah. 
Now you two are best friends. Yeah, honestly, oh my gosh. <laughs> After you go through an event like this, like, you can't not be best friends. So, then what happens? Then, after that, becomes just complete anarchy because I think everybody in the entire airport all had the same idea to just get onto Amtrak. So, everybody from the airport is in Amtrak. The lines... Amtrak is like the Titanic. It's going down and it's cold. <laughs> so the lines are hours long for tickets. There's people screaming like, there's no tickets going here, here. So I'm online and then this guy starts screaming like, there are no more train tickets to New York. Sierra already has a train ticket to New York, so she's already set and golden. But I start to panic and I'm going crazy. And then I found out that Chris here is like, I'm getting on a mega bus and I'm getting out of here. So I was like, okay. I'm about to hop on that board wagon, bandwagon, and um, <laughs> I go, and I am purchasing a Megabus ticket, but the purchase never went through, so I start to freak out. I mean, yeah, we have like four or five hours until the Megabus actually shows up, <laughs> but I start to freak out because I just want to be set, I want to have my ticket, I want to have everything planned out. And so I called Megabus probably approximately, like, what, nine times? Easily, yeah. I called Megabus. <laughs> I got transferred, like, 72 times. And by the time I reached somebody, they told me that um, all Megabuses have been canceled. Which, thank God, because the walk to the Megabus was, like, two blocks. And I better slow down. There's a cop right behind us. I'm on Facebook Live, and I'm going 80. Uh... I th hello, <laughs> hello, hello, sir. Uh, I don't want to go to Delaware prison. It's probably it's pretty rough. Um, so it was a two-block walk, and when we finally saw what was happening outside, because we really, like at that point, it was probably 5 p.m., and we all got to the airport about 1, 1.30, and when we were when we walked outside, it was like a hairdryer only with ice-cold air and snow. It was unbelievable how strong the wind was. And you went out without a jacket. I went out without my jacket on because you were wearing my suit coat, which was the only jacket I brought. Yeah, because I was freezing. I came from North Carolina. I didn't have anything on. It was like 30 degrees out here. I was dying. <laughs> I, I literally walked outside the little, like, what's the wheel door? Like the roundy door? Uh, ooh. I don't know. I don't know what those are called. So I went out the, uh, round, like, the door and I immediately walked back in. I screamed, nope! And walked back in, and I walked up to them, and I said, it's worse than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> yeah. So, it would have been a horrific walk to uh, two blocks to get, get that bus. So, thank goodness she found out it was canceled. So, at that point, everything's canceled. We're like, let's get a hotel. Amtrak's down, so Sierra didn't have a ride out. Every, they shut down all of Philadelphia within the span of 15 minutes. <laughs> like... Everything was gone. There was no transportation. There was barely Ubers anywhere. We had to go through Lyft. Yeah, it was four times pay, and it was $140. So then we... Um, the worst part was the lack of outlets. Oh, yeah. We ended up finding... It was ironic because um, both of our phones were dying. We want to say, like, maybe they were on max out 20% at one time and we found this like charging station but we didn't use the charging station we sat basically behind the charging station so we could use the other outlet that the charging station was plugged into to charge our phones and we were on rotation 
of charging our phones to call Megabus. <laughs> it was literally the millennial nightmare. Not enough outlets. We didn't care about chairs. We just needed our phones. Yeah, we had to steal chairs from a random table and drag them over to where we were. And we were just sitting in the middle of nowhere. With homeless people in the Philly bus station. That girl that came in soaking wet. Oh my god. Yeah, talk about the people walking inside. The people walking inside literally look... I I can't even explain it. They look like... You got somebody. Oh, he's pulling somebody over. Yeah, we're now back in Pennsylvania. But, um... So we eventually, we wait for a lift because Uber was $147. So Lyft, uh, I get a hotel at the Penrose Hotel. It was the closest one because it wasn't a chain, which we found out why later. Uh, so, so like, I didn't want to be creepy, but, I, like, I didn't want the two of them to have to stay in the train station. But I also didn't want to be like, hey, uh, you college co-eds, you want to come with me back to my hotel? <laughs> so... Like, and I could tell Sierra was not. She was like, oh, "I'm gonna try and get to see my friends in Villanova." Yeah, yeah. I was kind of sketched out. Yeah, but you—you uh, you were like, uh, "Get two beds." Yeah, I was literally like, "I have nowhere to go. We have to make this work. Just a room with two beds is fine for me. I'll sleep in a bathtub." For all I care, at this point, after 14 hours of travel, I was like, "I will literally sleep anywhere, <laughs> just as ha- long ha- as it's warm." Have I been creepy? Uh, you <laughs> asshole. <laughs> no. What'd you say? No. Thank you. All right. So, <laughs> and uh, so we get to the hotel, and this line at the Penrose Hotel is oh. not moving, and it's so slow. So I have the bright idea. It's like six, almost seven o'clock. So I go, you know what? We're all starving. Let's. There's a restaurant over here. Let's go eat because and by we the time we, yeah, we already have the room. Like. And how do you feel at this point? I, oh, that point? I was really hungry, and I thought it was a great idea to go get food. <laughs> oh, yeah. We all agreed. We were all on board. We were like, food, yes, we got the room. We finally are safe. There's nothing to worry about. It's golden. So we go into the hotel restaurant, like the sports bar, and it is easily the worst service I've ever had in my entire lifetime. Oh, yeah, guaranteed. We couldn't even understand the woman that was trying to take our order. <laughs> she had been there a week. She was probably, like, like 30-ish. Yeah. Yeah, and so we we get our food, and the food is horrific. Oh, my God. You couldn't even bite yours. <laughs> no, I, I, bit, I got a Philly cheesesteak, and so did she. And I went to bite into the bread, and my teeth didn't go into the bread at all. No, I, t- I was so starving that I literally just forced it down, but it was easily one of the worst things I've ever consumed in my life. And Sierra just had two orders of fries, because yeah. she's vegan. Yeah, I don't eat meat. <laughs> and there was nothing on it. So we eat, we finish, and we're like, whatever, it's food. And so we go, we get back in line, and we're standing in line when they announce... Uh, oh, oh my gosh. This is the, probably easily, we like... We finally got close, too. Yeah, one of the worst parts of the night. They were like... Um, even if you have a reservation, we booked out every room here that we have. <laughs> and it's like 10 at this point. Oh, it is late, yeah. Because it took hours to eat. But it felt like it was like 2 in the morning, so yeah. it was like hour like 13 or something. So, <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm sorry guys. So we call Hotels.com, they finally at like 10.45 find us a hotel. And uh, so we go, we end up going a half an hour away to Wilmington, Delaware, to the nice Double Tree Inn. And it was so, like, the hotel was so much better than that dirty oh, ass. Oh, beautiful, yeah, yeah, definitely. 
So, and they're not happy, I can tell. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I was like just content with like the whole entire day and the whole situation. I was to put my head on the table and just like picking out there. Like, <laughs> Me too. I didn't care. And our, our, our ride there was just completely silent. Yeah. We were just sitting there so just no, like depressed. We were like, and Ahmed, the driver, had been driving since noon that day, so he was on his, like, 11th hour of driving, and I could tell he was getting sleep. I hope he made it home, because he barely got us there. Oh, yeah. And take us to the store to get Oreos or whatever. Yeah, I got I got water and Oreos. So, uh, he was nice. And then, so, I, I call around. I get a rental car from Budget. I had a Megabus ticket for this morning to get to D.C., but I'm like, you know what? I'm not putting my hands in. I'm going to get a car. I'm gonna just going to spend the money and rent a car, so... Uh, I called and got the reservation switched to Wilmington. We are now in a Jeep. In oh, yeah. It's a nice Jeep. Trailblazer. Yeah. It's nice. So we all woke up and clean. we... <laughs> clean. For it to get cleaned in the cold until we actually go inside where they had some nice space heaters. <laughs> you almost burned to death in that little budget rent-a-car. I did almost burn to death in the budget rent-a-car. <laughs> now, where do your parents think you are? Uh, my parents think that I'm still in Philadelphia. They don't think that I left Philadelphia. <laughs> and they don't know about me. No, they don't know about him. <laughs> their twenty-one year old, their twenty-year-old daughter did not sleep in a room with a strange man last night. <laughs> nope. Okay, we're good. Um, they wouldn't be the happiest of individuals, <laughs> to say the least. I think my mom would have to take some severe sedatives to be able to make it through. I don't know, until I made it home. Yeah. You'd have to be on something. So, I am now in the rental car, and when we were in the train station, this boomer, who's like a tech lobbyist or something, started chatting us up, and uh, I'm going to I'm going to drop them off in Philadelphia, and they're getting, Sierra's mom's coming to get them and take them back to Long Island. Long Island, New York. And where it's supposedly really bad. Oh, yeah. Apparently, um, the weather is awful. I have water in my basement too. The roads are awful. My dad said that there's utility poles that are down. So it's going to be exciting. Good to go back. Best spring break ever. Yeah, <laughs> wild. <laughs> wild spring break. <laughs> so, uh, and I'm in the rental car headed to pick this guy up. He's going to pay half in the gas and uh, drop them off at Starbucks. Then we part. It will be very sad. Yeah, that would be our final. End of the road. We have to take a group picture. I know. <laughs> yeah, because I need memories. <laughs> and uh, then I'm off to Washington, D.C., so I should be at the conference in about yeah, two hours, a, three hours. We got a message. You going to be late for the SEC meeting then? I'm not going to the SEC meeting. Who, oh. who asked that? Sarah? Uh, Jeremiah? Jeremiah. Yeah, Jeremiah's a smartass. Jeremiah's the one that sent us the photos of the Megabus. Oh, oh my gosh, that was so funny. You want to know where my seat is? Right where it's wrecked. <laughs> so he sent, like, this mega bus that had been crashed, and the seat that I had was, like, right at the top. So, all right, final messages. Uh, Caitlin? Um, final... Oh, this... The phone has high temperature. I don't know what's going on. That's okay. How do I get into it? Um, final messages is that this trip has not gone at all what was expected, but at the same time, I feel like it could have been a lot worse, and if, like, we haven't happened to, like, run into each other and, like, kind of make this little group, like, I don't know, I feel like this isn't awful. It's a 
good story. It is definitely a good story. Alright, Sierra. I had fun. <laughs> Happy to be home though soon. Yeah, we're all we're all glad to finally kind of be out of it. So it was a good story. So alright, well I will update you guys once I get to the conference and uh, thanks for watching. While at the conference, I got to interview one student. Her name is Kelly Huck. And Kelly is a Young Americans for Liberty and Students for Liberty leader in Florida, and she is very active in a lot of different groups. So here is my interview with Kelly Huck. Okay. Check one, two. You're going to edit this a bit, right? Yeah, I mean, if you screw up. I but do. You, you probably won't. Okay. You seem pretty well-spoken. Okay. Yeah, sure. We'll... Uh... We'll hope for that. I've uh, done my fair share. I don't know. if Were you at the Charlotte Summit? No. No. Have you ever been to a Yale Summit? No. You should definitely come to one. What is the difference? Um, so Yale Summits are regional. It's a little bit more of bonding with your local region, maybe schools that you've um, encountered or have friends that go to. So the Charlotte Summit is one that is for the southeast region. It's the second one of the Yale Summits, and we're expecting about 700 children, or 700 kids, <laughs> 700 kids to show up. We have uh, Thomas Massey's going to be speaking, Kane, who's always a great speaker, and then loads of other really good uh, just liberty speaking cool. uh, events. So. Because those people are talking. Don't you know you're getting in the way? What did you say? But I'm in so many organizations now that <laughs> about it. Let's, before we keep talking, let me... All right, state your name, please. My name is Kelly Huck. All right, and where do you go to school at? I go to Flagler College. I'm a senior. Excellent, yes. Uh, St. Augustine, one of my favorite places on the, on the planet. It's absolutely gorgeous there. Love it. Great city. Okay, so you are here. Are you in any kind of official capacity? How many student groups are you in? I'm going to say probably about five right now, um, all at a national level, more than likely. Uh, I'm mainly involved with Young Americans for Liberty, but here I am at LibertyCon sponsoring SFL as a CC. What is a CC? A CC is a campus coordinator, and my job basically is to find and recruit liberty-minded students on campus to join a club or to even start a club, maybe at their school or at my own school. Okay. So how's that going? Uh for every other school, it's been pretty fun. At my school, I'm actually not allowed to have any Liberty organizations. I've been denied by SGA three times now, and every time I try to have an event, it gets shut down, and I'm asked to leave by police. For Did they give any kind of reason why? I don't have a permit. That old gag. They've been using that since the 50s. Uh, the interesting thing is I'm not allowed to have a permit, um, basically because the SGA's voting rules is a two-thirds majority. It's very poor representation of the people that actually go to Flagler, and they will not allow a right-leaning conservative group on campus, even though we're not. We just really want to roll around a free speech ball and have some have some human rights, you know? Yeah, that is, that is so odd. Like, you hear so much about the free speech on campus being a big deal. Is that just blog sites kind of blowing that up, or are college students these days really as SJW crazy as everybody makes them out to be? It's going to depend on your campus. I have some great campuses. Florida Gulf Coast, for example, is a fabulous school, great free speech policies. Then I have schools like mine where it gets a little iffy if you're even allowed to be on campus doing activism. Stetson University last year, they 
put up pro campus carry flyers and a teacher went and ripped them down and was allowed to go and rip them down. Explain campus carry for those who don't know. Uh, just the right for students to be able to carry their weapons on campus, concealed carry. Okay. Yeah. You would think that there wouldn't be many college, I mean, do you find a lot of uh, receptiveness towards that message? I find more protests actually, yep. Mm-hmm. Okay. A lot of people in the college age range, they have probably never even shot a gun, honestly. They don't have a concealed carry and they don't research their state's gun laws. So it's been it's been a rough ride. So back to your school, I mean, do they give any kind of reason why they wouldn't allow a student group like that? So we do have a college Republicans and we have a college Democrats, and they thought there was no need to have another group on campus. <laughs> Like, it just doesn't even make sense. That's like it's the exact reason that I got in the email back. So I thought I thought that was a little crazy. And I, um, I've contested it a few times, but each time I just can't get anything through. So hopefully we're going to reorganize and come back with a stronger game plan because I think every school should be able to have a YAL chapter one way or another um, just to make it happen. You know, every school should have the ability to have one. And there are some schools that haven't been approved. Some schools have thriving YAL chapters of 200-plus members. So... So y'all has really only come about since uh, this podcast has been in existence, and it has really caught on. Why do you think y'all has grown so fast, Young Americans for Liberty? I got drawn into it in a matter of weeks after I figured it out. So I will be honest, if you found us out through memes, you are the majority. Everyone loves the y'all memes. They're great. Um, the activism on campus is so interesting. So we've even had things like dunk tanks where you never know if you're going to be in prison or not. So the dunk tank of the drug war, that's been a pretty fun one. Or a union hot dog stand, a union versus a non-union. We have a lot of fun events, and I think that really catches people's eyes. Also, we came out of the Ron Paul, Students for Ron Paul. So a lot of people really love Ron Paul that just keep joining Young Americans for Liberty. Now, may I ask your age? I know you're not supposed to ask a lady their age uh, that often, but... I am 21, and I'm uh, soon to be 22. Okay. Wow, yeah. So how did you become a libertarian? I fell from college Republicans. So I used to be a secretary for college Republicans, and then I moved to Florida. And this is actually what interests me. So there is a distillery in St. Augustine that makes their liquor. They have to put it on a truck drive it an hour north to Jacksonville, have it inventoried, put on the same truck, driven right back to the distillery to be sold at the restaurant for customers to drink. And that raises the price of it probably about 30 to 35% per glass, actually. And students, when they hear about that, they're like, whoa, my alcohol's getting expensive? No way, we got to stop this. So um, I learned about regulations, and I learned that that's not good. And then, I, you know, soon I'll just be an aunt. Anarcho-capitalist. I'm. It's just. I'm keeping. It's a <laughs> do uh, do you have an ideology at this point, like that you claim, or are you just like uh, I'm just giving in. I black and, and yellow for life. I'm governed by principles. Okay. What are your principles? Human rights, individual freedom, and I will say that the right to expression. Mm-hmm. I am pink hair covered in tattoos and I think that people should be expressing themselves a lot more so free speech has been a huge issue for me okay and that's definitely what drawed me in to the libertarian movement I've noticed at this uh event that campus speech free speech the head of the ACLU was here talking about free speech which we recorded and we're going to place in there I mean do you think that that is really going to be the driving issue 
for 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 my generation i'm i'm an older millennial you know the wars and 9/11 were such foundational things for us and and ending wars and um privacy edward snowden are are big things do you think that for your generation gen z uh, I don't know if you claim Gen Z or Millennial. It's you're kind of on the on the I'm edge. On the, I'm on the year actually, so I can claim either one I want. But I I don't think I relate with Gen Z very well. Millennials. Um, okay. Currently in my college group, I would say the campus climate. A lot of people, a lot on either side, are focused a lot on wrongful incarceration of disproportionate incarceration of people of color and victimless crimes such as like drug offenses so that's that's kind of the climate that i'm seeing on campus if you want to take that away from the typical screaming of what's my gender what's going on i just want to be noticed scream feminism all that um people actually do have the issue of no matter which identity you claim incarceration and there's a lot more government than people want right yeah, LGBT rights were big for us. So, so when you say it's about attention, I mean, obviously not as an overarching thing, but is that what you find a lot of that SJW, I don't know a better term, that that is really about attention? Is that kind of your read on it? No, I think it is very new and exciting, and there is a lot of unexplored territory with identity there, and a lot of people are trying to find an identity. I mean... Everyone's, everyone wants an identity now. They want to be known for what they stand for, what they believe in. Um, something I've seen very prominent on college campuses is that the philosophy that you vote with your dollar. So people are voting to buy food that they support. So if it's organic food, they support organic markets or free trade coffee. So a lot of people are voting with their dollar. They want to be supportive in that sense. Okay. So what are the other what are the organizations you're in? You said five. Uh, I would say roughly five. So I f- am a Young Americans for Liberty state chair, a Students for Liberty campus coordinator, a fee campus ambassador, and I have had an internship working for conservatives concerned with the death penalty, and I also am involved with the Leadership Institute, and I've gone to a couple of their trainings. They're very, very um, beneficial. I've learned a lot from them. They're very hardcore, though. Not going to say they're not for the week. You wake up at 7 in the morning, you're not done until 11 at night. You're going to learn so much in that day. Yeah, the Leadership Institute I've been, it's really an extraordinary program. You're going to learn a lot about grassroots, candidate training, a lot of the, the basics. I mean, what are some of the things that you learned there? How to talk to people about politics without scaring them. <laughs> I will say that's a pretty good one. Um, Give us details on that. Like, So when you're on campus, it's not always a good um, option to just go up to the nearest person wearing a uh, keep calm and carry an AR-15 shirt and ask them to join your club. You want to know about people's principles. You want to know what they stand for, what their interests are, what what is something in the current day that they stand for, what is something that they would like to see change. So we've talked about getting to learn people and why they're in the movement or why they're involved in this sort of activism. Okay, so... I, you and I actually connected because of the death penalty internship, and I was supposed to have you on, but there was a transitional period <laughs> when all that was happening, so I didn't have you on. Uh, so I want to give you your opportunity now. I mean, wh- wh- where do you stand on the death penalty? I mean, that doesn't seem to be brought up like it was in the 90s as much, and it probably should be. 
You know, the death penalty is a very touchy subject for a lot of people. A lot of people view it as something that we should keep because it is the ultimate way to punish someone for a crime they've committed. But when you look into it a little bit more, it punishes the people of the state. So it's very expensive to go through a death penalty case to house a prisoner and go through all the the legal proceedings. Also, there usually isn't much justice for the family of a victim. I don't feel that the death penalty really addresses that. If life is life, then life in prison is death. Mm -hmm. So I think that is just as effective. Mm -hmm. So what do you get out of coming to a convention like this? I mean, for... If I haven't set it up properly, I mean, there's how many thousands of college kids going to a bunch of seminars about economics and really nerdy things. And then there was one about memes, uh, which we talked to those guys. Like, what do you guys get out of these when you come to a convention like this? When you get to come to a convention, you get to meet people that... So usually all of your colleges are very spread out. You all centrally meet in one area, and it is just a massive networking best friend gathering of liberty. And you get to see friends from all over the country. You get to meet new people, and you also can have your ideas challenged by um, listening to some of these panels, I think. So I did get to attend the immigration debate. I found that was very interesting. And I was pretty open border, but there were some good, there were some good arguments, I will say, for... Um, a little bit more strict immigration and reviewing the immigration policies. So interesting. So it it's not only about the camaraderie. You do you do learn a lot, and it's the networking. What are some of the best conventions? What have you been to, and what are what are your favorites? So I've been to LibertyCon. It was formerly known as ISFLC last year. I've been to YALCON. I've been to several Young Americans for Liberty summits, and I do really want to attend CPAC next year. But this is this is pretty much it. Just anything YAL and SFL related, because I still am a student. I haven't really branched out into the more adult conferences yet. Plus, those are really fun. <laughs> so, if you're one of our college student listeners and you've got one convention to attend, what what do you choose? Depends what time frame. So, in the March time frame, we have LibertyCon, but in the summer, we have YALCON, and it's in D.C. as well. It is a blast. It is three days long. You get to stay in the hotel, and the speakers just, the list of speakers is amazing. Thomas, Massey, Rand Paul, Ron Paul. We've had amazing people come there, and it's life-changing for so many people. A lot of people never even heard about YAL before their chapter president on campus says, get in the car, we're driving to D.C. and going to a convention. I actually met one of the best chapters I've ever had. Her name was Carly Lloyd. She came to our Atlanta summit. Her friend said, get in, we're driving to Atlanta. She got there. She's like, where are we? And then she got to see Rand Paul talk. She got to hear great speakers. And now she is a Alabama state chair with amazing chapters doing great activism throughout the state. So it can change in a matter of months from attending something like this. It's absolutely life-changing. It's great. All right. Final thoughts. Tell the listeners what, if you could impart wisdom or anything that uh, really, like, people talk about college students a certain way, especially boomers. <laughs> what, what are some of those misconceptions that you'd like people to be a little more understanding about? We like to have fun, but we also like to know why we're having fun. Everyone here came here with the reason of becoming a better activist, becoming a better leader on campus, and that is what they're doing. And we're not all here just having fun and partying and getting to go to all these sessions, eat some really good D.C. food, see the sights, but we're here learning a lot about 
the libertarian movement. We're learning a lot about the sponsors and organizations. And there's also a lot of inter, um, internships that you could get here. I think that's very beneficial if anyone wanted to look into job opportunities. These conventions are seriously a good place to advance your career. Yeah, the students here are so much more serious than when I was in college. Like, everyone's very intense and in a suit and very put together. I've had bosses that are 19 years old running around the entire region, just phone calls every day on planes every weekend. You can get involved at a very early age and have a pretty cool traveling career even inside of college well if you're in the liberty movement it's pretty fun all right uh if you want people to follow you no creepertarians okay and you can say no to this if you don't want uh, you you yes we're admin i love it okay all right i'm if you want people to follow you i'm gonna you don't have to say you can say no and if you say yes, no creepertarians are allowed to bother Kelly. And if you do, she's going to let me know who you are, and I will speak to you directly. Uh, so if you want people to follow you on social media, where, where can they follow you? Uh, my Instagram and Twitter, and um, I think that's all I have, is a Stellar Kelly, S-T-E-L-L-A-R-K-E-L-L-I. And I'm always glad to make Facebook friends and talk to you about liberty in your region, maybe get you connected with some people that you didn't know were actually around you. So feel free to talk to me. I'm, I'm more than happy to get you connected and talk about liberty in your area. I follow you. Aren't you on the keto life? I am keto life. I actually lost 70 pounds in the past six months from keto. That's amazing. That, how, how does it work that fast? It's life-changing. The majority of it, I actually lost about 35 pounds in the first two months. It sheds off really fast, but not going to lie. I, uh, Ate Zaxby's, had a milkshake, full meal, went to a doctor's appointment, got my blood work back. They said, you have prediabetes. If you don't change anything, you could have type 2 diabetes in a few years. The next day, I went on the keto diet, and I went vegan, and nothing has changed. Since then, I've been 70 pounds lighter, and my life has been completely different than it was before. Yeah, I've, I followed you during that, and it's really inspirational. So go check that stuff out. Another testimonial, we had listeners uh after having Bittner on talk about keto and everybody's doing it I need to do it too yep it can be a little discouraging at first because you're like I don't get carbs no pasta no ah and especially keto vegan the plants are carbs so you do have to walk a tight line but keto is very worthwhile if you can get over the keto flu you can do anything I promise you you can do it if I can do it you can do it um coupled with exercise of course so all right Kelly thanks for joining us thank you so much for having me one of the best sessions of the entire weekend was David Bose speaking about three principles of libertarianism. Now, Bose is somebody that I have learned a great deal from. He's from the Cato Institute, and his book, The Libertarian Mind, is a great read and gives us a great framework for constitutional libertarians especially. So check out that book and take a listen to this speech. And a manifesto for freedom and the editor of The Libertarian Reader. Boaz is a provocative commentator and a leading authority on domestic issues such as education, choice, drug legalization, the growth of the government, and the rise of libertarianism. Boaz is the former editor of the New Guard magazine and was executive director of the Council for a Competitive Economy prior to joining Cato in 1981. The earlier edition of the Libertarian Mind titled Libertarianism, a premier, was described by the Los Angeles Times as a well-researched manifesto of libertarian ideas. His other books include The Politics of Freedom, 
and the Keto Handbook for Policymakers. Please join me in inviting David Bose. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for being here. This is a great conference, um, and I know there's lots of stuff running all day, so to have people here still at 5 o'clock when there are other alternatives is very impressive. A uh, bit of a crowded podium up here, but... What a great time to be a libertarian, or at least that's what I was thinking a few years ago when uh, we had the Ron Paul campaign and then the Rand Paul election and the Tea Party and marijuana legalization and gay marriage and then Edward Snowden's revelations about mass spying and people were talking about a libertarian moment. And then suddenly, in a moment's time, that seemed to pass and suddenly we had Trump and Sanders and Clinton and around the world Jeremy Corbyn and uh, Marine Le Pen and now Marion Le Pen right over here in Washington and everybody's talking about nationalism and protectionism and socialism so it looks like maybe things have turned the wrong way. Maybe we should all move to Brazil where the student libertarians took down the president of Brazil. But I'm old enough to remember the 1970s when nobody was talking about libertarianism, moments or other. We just hoped they would call us librarians instead of libertines when they got it mixed up. But one of the things that I try to tell libertarian audiences and non-libertarian audiences is that lots more Americans are libertarians than realize it. A lot of that is definitional, of course, depends on how you define libertarian, but I want to tell Americans, if you consider yourself fiscally conservative and uh, socially tolerant, socially liberal, if you think the government should get out of your pocket and out of your bedroom, if you don't think the federal government can manage the economy or the world, then you just might be a libertarian. If you hold those views, you don't fit into the liberal box or the conservative box. And I want people like that to start thinking of themselves as libertarians. Maybe they're moderate libertarians, and many of us are radical libertarians. That's fine. Um, like I said, it's a crowded podium for these notes. Um, I want us to be the vanguard of that movement, but I want more people to understand that they really should think of themselves as part of that. So that's part of why I wrote The Libertarian Mind, was to get more people thinking in that way. When we want to go out and introduce people to libertarianism, we have to meet people where they are. But first, we should know where we are. We should know what it is we stand for and then think about how we're going to market those ideas. So what is it? What is this libertarian idea that we all believe in? I like Adam Smith's phrasing from The Wealth of Nations, the obvious and simple system of natural liberty. The simple system of natural liberty. That's what I think libertarianism is. That's what liberty is. It's not a complicated system. It's basically just leave people alone. They respect your rights. You respect their rights. Everything works. In The Libertarian Mind, the first line of the book is libertarianism is the philosophy of freedom. That's a pretty good summary, too. And the important thing there is personal freedom and economic freedom. And this is the problem we've had for a long time in the United States, that a lot of people who believe in economic freedom are not so keen on a lot of personal freedoms and vice versa. Libertarians believe 
in freedom across the board, liberty across the board, personal freedom and economic freedom, political freedom, human rights, all those things. About 30 years ago, there was a best-selling book called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And, you know, I like to say you learn the essence of libertarianism, which is, in fact, also the essence of civilization, in kindergarten. What do you learn in kindergarten? Well, many things. But among those things are don't hit other people, don't take their stuff, and keep your promises. If you do that, if you hold to those ideas, then you're basically a libertarian. And if your society holds to those ideas, then you will have a successful society. Don't hit other people, don't take their stuff, and keep your promises. That really is the essence of all the public policy that libertarians talk about. But let me go into a little more depth, and I'm going to talk about three key ideas that I think make up the libertarian overall idea. Number one is individual rights. Individual rights that we have as a person by virtue of being a human being, not prescribed from government. Libertarians don't always agree on exactly where these rights come from. Some say from God, God-given rights. Some say from nature. They're natural rights. They're in the nature of the human being. It's not in the nature of ants to be free. It's not in the nature of cows to be free, although there was a cow in the news the other day who seemed to think it was. Um, but it is in the nature of human beings to be free. The Declaration of Independence kind of finesses this issue by referring to the laws of nature and of nature's God. So whichever way you look at it, Declaration of Independence has you covered. There are libertarians who don't think either nature or God is a very good example, and they might say consequences. We have or we want to respect individual rights because we can trace the consequences of respecting rights or not respecting rights. I think you find a lot of economists fall into that category. They don't, they don't believe in this religious stuff about rights. They do believe that if you look at all the ways government can interfere with what we see, what I see, as individual rights, they see that the consequences will not be good, whether that's taxes or crony capitalism or the minimum wage or whatever. What libertarians do agree on, I think, is that these rights are imprescriptible. That is, they are not prescribed by any human agency. They do not come from the king. They don't come from the president. They don't come from the parliament or Congress. They don't even come from the Constitution. We hear a lot of times, the Constitution gives me the right to do that. That's not correct. The Constitution protects your right to do that. The Constitution guarantees your right to do that. But you had the rights before we created the Constitution. We created the Constitution, as the Declaration of Independence says, to secure these rights. Governments are instituted among men. Not to give us rights, but to secure these rights. So what we agree on is that the rights are imprescriptible and individual. Second key topic, spontaneous order. Now, if you've taken a political theory class, then you've heard about the difference between normative and positive ideas. Normative ideas, 
what should be, what is just. Well, that's kind of individual rights. Individual rights you would call a normative idea. It prescribes the way things ought to operate. Spontaneous order is a positive idea. It just states the way things are. You don't have to be a libertarian to observe spontaneous order. Spontaneous order exists, whether you notice it or not. Um, but it is often the case that libertarians or free market economists are the ones who study spontaneous order and understand its importance. And so many people have trouble seeing this spontaneous order. To a lot of us, order seems planned, right? To get yourself to this conference, you had to do some planning. To put on this conference, people had to do a lot of planning. To create Students for Liberty or the Cato Institute, had to do a lot more planning. And to create a network of finance and telecommunications that spans the globe so that you can go to a bank on a Sunday in France or Indonesia and get money out of a machine from people who don't know you, who don't meet you, who will never know you, that takes an incredible amount of planning to make that happen. So to smart people, to intellectual people, it looks like the more complex the system, the more planning is required. If you live here in the Washington area, getting here, pretty much you had to get yourself out of bed, get onto the metro or whatever, not a whole lot of planning. Putting the conference together, more complicated, more planning. Creating a worldwide bank, more complicated, lots more planning. What's hard for a lot of people to see, and I think maybe particularly hard for intellectuals to see who think in these rational constructivist terms is that the most important institutions of society typically are spontaneous orders. They have evolved. They have not been planned. They are, as the Scottish Enlightenment said, of human action but not of human design. Now what are these institutions that I say, are spontaneous orders. Well, one of them is language. Now, you all took an English class when you were young, and you heard the rules of the English language. You were taught how to spell, how to do grammar, maybe even how to diagram a sentence. But the rules themselves evolved. There are dictionaries and grammarians and professors of English these days who tell us what the rules are, but the rules evolved over many years. If you've tried to read Shakespeare, it's a little difficult. doesn't look quite like English. And if you've tried to read Chaucer, it really doesn't look like English. It's hard to... And all of that was spontaneous evolution. That's an example of spontaneous order. Within the language debates, there are language debates. Uh, by the way, I always point out, you know, the French language has an actual academy of the French language, and they do try to plan it. And they say, no, no, you cannot say le weekend and le computer. You must use the French word la fin de la semaine, uh, whatever the word for computer is. But mostly they fail. And besides which, French isn't a static language. There was Latin, then there was Old French, Middle French, now there's Modern French. Maybe we're up to postmodern French. So at any given point, you can try to freeze it. But the language continues to evolve. Now, within language debates, there are prescriptivists and descriptivists. And the debate there is generally the descriptivists say, the point of a grammarian or a dictionary is just tell you what the language is, how do people use the word, so on. The prescriptivists say, no, some things are right and some things are wrong. 
Um, there is a difference between uninterested and disinterested, and you ought to use the difference. You ought to know the difference. If you want to communicate with me and you say uninterested when you mean disinterested, then I will get the wrong idea because I know what those words mean. A few years ago, a younger editor at the Cato Institute sent something up for my approval, and it had a phrase in it like, between you and I. And I circled it, and then I said to him, how the heck did that get all the way to my desk, between you and I? He said, oh, it's optional. Said, no, it's not optional. It's between you and me. It's not optional to say I. He said, well, in his book, Steven Pinker says that it's optional. I said, well, then Steven Pinker is dead to me. But the reality is the language does change and things that my father or his father might have insisted on really are no longer the way you have to do it in English. And if enough people say between you and I, and especially enough educated people, then the language will change. And eventually that may be the reality. Language is a spontaneous order. It evolves over many centuries, and then we write down the rules and we try to obey them because it helps if we all use the same rules for communicating. But it did evolve. Law. Most of us think law is something written by Congress, written by the state legislature. These days, written by nameless, faceless bureaucrats in square buildings in Washington. Um, people with a little more sophistication might say, well, a law comes from the Supreme Court. Um, yeah, to some extent that's true. But the reality is the fundamental law that governs our lives, the common law, the law of property, the law of tort, the laws that decide whether if my tree falls on your property it's your problem or my problem, those things evolved over many centuries. In the beginning, a tree fell on somebody else's property. And the question arose, who's responsible for the damage? And how do you settle that? Well, they probably called in a neighbor, maybe a wise man from down the street, and they said, who should be responsible for this? And a decision was made. And over the years, some people came to be respected for their wisdom in deciding such things. And they decided them usually on the basis of precedent. The last time this happened, we decided this way. The last time this happened, we decided this way, but the circumstances are different. Are they different enough to change the rule? Some people were wise at doing that, and eventually some of those people got turned to a lot, and eventually they became known as judges. And that was their profession to apply the law to new circumstances. And this went on for a long time, and then governments got involved. And mostly at first, it was probably kings just saying, well, I'm making a rule. I'm changing that. I'm changing that rule. My family is exempt anyway, but I'm changing the rule as it affects you. And then later, we got more regularized legal systems. First, we have judges today still who mostly apply the common law along with statutory law and precedent, which is common law. But we also have legislatures all over the world passing laws that, whose basic purpose is to overrule the common law. Because after all, if we were just following the common law of property and contract and tort, we wouldn't need all these regulations and statutes and everything. So mostly what legislatures are doing is distorting the law 
introducing monkey wrenches into the law. The law itself, however, continues to evolve. If you're a corporate lawyer, every time you write a contract, you're helping the law to evolve. You help us to understand what's standard in a contract, what's not even in the contract, because everybody knows these particular provisions, the way the law evolves to deal with new technologies and so on. So law also a spontaneous order, which very few people understand. Even law professors, I think, don't really get that point. Another spontaneous order, money. These days, we think money is something created by the Federal Reserve, and they do create a lot of it. But initially, what was the purpose of money? I have apples, you have fish. We trade some apples for some fish. But then it turns out you have fish, but I'm allergic to fish, so I can't trade my apples to you for fish. Now what do we do in order to have a more balanced diet? Well, it turns out we might find a third person, make a three-way trade. Beyond three, it gets pretty complicated. So at that point, people look for a unit of exchange, and that can be all kinds of things in different places. It's been seashells, rocks, um, finely uh, honed stones. But a lot of places, it turned out, gold and silver seemed to have all the characteristics that you wanted um, money to have, a medium of exchange. And so we moved toward gold and silver. And then, just like with the law, sort of, kings got into it. And kings said, I tell you what, it's not really, um, it's not really money unless it has my picture on it. And so these are coins now. And they have my picture on them, and that's how you know they're real money. And then the kings discovered, you know, it's a one-ounce gold coin. If I shave 1% of the gold off of that, nobody's going to know the difference. If I shave 2%, nobody's going to know. If I shave 3%, crafty traders are going to start saying, this doesn't feel right. But if I shave 1% a year and another 1% 10 years late, you know, and so this is how governments started corrupting the money. And then they came up with a really good idea. There is a limited amount of gold and silver in the world, but there's pretty much an unlimited amount of paper. So if we just put my picture on paper and then we say this piece of paper is worth an ounce of gold, well, we can print infinite amounts of that. And that's how we got inflation. It's been a, it's happened many places in the world. The money evolved. If government stays out of it, the market does a pretty good job of saying this money is good, this money is not good. You've heard of Gresham's Law, bad money drives out good. I mean, people can tell the difference between bad money and good money. Um, continental banknotes in the American Revolution turned out not to be well backed up. They issued too many of them. People came not to trust them. They wanted to get real coins from Europe. Confederate dollars turned out not to work out so well once the Confederacy had no uh, assets, no taxes. Um, government, again, can distort the money that has evolved, but it can't actually do a very good job of creating it. Um, and then the one, the, the, the spontaneous order that's sort of most important for our politics is the economy. And here again, this is where smart people, intellectuals, really have trouble seeing that the economy is a spontaneous order. Every one of us gets up in the morning thinking, what can I do today to make my life and those of my family better? And that may mean making something, carrying something, selling something, 
making deals. Maybe I don't make anything, but I put together people who have and people who want, and I can make money that way. And through that, we go from trading apples for fishes to creating networks of finance that run across national borders, across continents, simply by having every person act in his own self-interest, his own family's interest every day, subject to the simple rules you learned in kindergarten, don't, uh, don't hit other people, don't take their stuff, and keep your promises. If you do that every day, the economy will get a little more efficient, a little more productive, and we can go from trading, fish, trading loaves and fishes to having the world we see around us. And even if you've been terribly diverted from that process, if you've been living in Mao's China, you just start legalizing trades, and in 30 years, you can have the most rapid economic growth in the history of the world. You can go from being a desperately poor country where people fight over insects to eat to a country that has more capital than any other country in the world right now. Um, that is the spontaneous order that the market can generate, and virtually everything that governments try to do to improve on that spontaneous order is in fact distorting and destroying the spontaneous order. Every transaction that isn't made, every transaction that two people want to make and aren't able to makes, us, makes them poorer and makes us all a little bit poorer. Every transaction that two people don't want to make but are forced to make by government makes us all a little bit poorer. And the the accumulated effect of all the rules and regulations that government has come up with to interfere in the spontaneous economy um, costs us a lot. Hard to estimate how much costs us a lot. That's something libertarians understand. I use in my book, I talked about the coordinating process of the market. We all have plans. The market is the way we coordinate our plans, and it tells some of us that our plans are not very good. They don't satisfy human needs as effectively as somebody else's plan, so nobody wants to make the deal with us, and that's very frustrating. When we have an idea uh, for a product, for a trade, for a sale, for a, a use for a piece of property, and the market, the other people who are in a position to make that decision for themselves, don't want to do business with you. But the coordinating process is to use the assets in society, use the factors of production as efficiently as possible to build wealth. And what the government comes in and does is discoordinate. Virtually everything government does besides enforcing property and contract is discoordinating the economy. The market is a coordination process. Government is a discoordination process. So number one individual rights. Number two, spontaneous order. And the third big libertarian idea, limited government. Limited government to protect individual rights and spontaneous order. In the United States, we usually say limited constitutional government because we understand this limited government to be instantiated in our constitution and in the system of laws that run from it. But there are countries that don't have constitutions, and they still have law and order. They still have, they can still have limited government. And unfortunately, 
most countries that have uh, produced constitutions in the last century or so have created constitutions that don't limit government, that merely empower government, that take the powers we have as individuals and give them to the government. We understand that we have a government that is limited because we have our freedoms and our rights and our powers, and we decided, and there's, there's a lot of weight being done by that phrase, we decided, but I'll skip over that for the moment. We decided to delegate some of our powers to the government in the Constitution. We decided that to make sure they didn't think we'd given them more powers than we had, we would enumerate the powers that we were giving them. Mostly in Article I, Section 8, these are the powers of the federal government. And by delegating and enumerating them, we limited them. And then, just to be sure, it was suggested maybe this federal government should also have a Bill of Rights. And the objection to the Bill of Rights was, why do we need a Bill of Rights when we haven't given the government the power to violate any rights? But for greater caution, Madison said, we will write a Bill of Rights. And so they listed a bunch of rights, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, Second Amendment, Third Amendment, no quartering. The, the one amendment they would be really good about obeying, no quartering of troops in homes. Um, and then they wrote the Ninth Amendment, the enumeration of certain rights in this Constitution shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people, which gets back to my original point. The rights are retained by the people. They are not granted to the people. And then for yet more caution, this is trying to be a triply redundant system. They add the Tenth Amendment, the powers not granted to the federal government in this Constitution are reserved to the states and the people. So first we wrote a Constitution that said the federal government has these powers. Then we listed a bunch of things, a bunch of rights it can't violate, even in carrying out its delegated powers. And then we said this isn't all the rights we have. And we are not giving up any of our rights, even though we didn't name them here. And then we wrote a Tenth Amendment. And remember, if we didn't name the power in this Constitution, then it remains with the states or the people. So this obviously has not worked perfectly, and we could go the whole hour on that point, but the purpose is limited government. That's the third big idea for libertarians, individual rights, spontaneous order, and limited government. And then I'm going to mention one more basic idea that you wouldn't think needed to be said, but I worry someday, these days, maybe it does. We by that I mean we libertarians and most of us Americans are liberals in the classical sense. And liberalism is a universal creed. It means that we believe that all people are endowed by, with certain inalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness, not just some people. And that ideal is incompatible with political ideas based on concepts like blood and soil or treating people differently on the basis of their race or religion. And like I say, I shouldn't need to say that here, but it seems like we've had some examples in the past year or two of some people who don't seem to get the distinction that libertarianism, liberalism, means all people. There are many ideas in the world that are not universal, that are based on the idea 
that we people, whether that is we of our religion, we of our race, we of our land, we people are different and we have rules for us that other people are not entitled to. We liberals believe in a universal creed. Now, people have written books on all these complicated topics. I wrote one, but there are many books that I drew on. For me, it does in the end sort of come down to I hold this truth to be self-evident, that it's wrong to initiate force against innocent people. Whenever I think about should the government do X, that's really what I'm thinking about. Does that involve the initiation of force against people who have not themselves used force? And if not, then there's not likely to be a persuasive argument for the government being able to do that. Now, all of you know, in practical terms, libertarians favor smaller government, less spending, lower taxes, free trade, civil liberties, personal freedom, a less interventionist approach to defense and foreign affairs, and we celebrate civil society, free association, and the social progress that they generate, and we seek strict limits on the size, scope, and power of government in order to maximize freedom. Another quick little concept that I like in talking about liberty is Smokey the Bear's rules for fire safety also apply to government. Keep it small, keep it in a confined area, that's what the Constitution tried to do, and keep an eye on it, which is our job. That's what the Cato Institute does, the National Taxpayers Union, the Students for Liberty, all those kinds of groups. Keep an eye on the government and make sure it is kept small and in a confined area. Now, when I speak, I'm often asked, oh yeah, where's an example of a successful libertarian society? And my answer to that question is easy. The United States of America, not a perfectly libertarian society, but compared to most of what had gone before in the world, it was a country based on liberal values, on enlightenment values. It was mostly based on individual rights, a free economy, and limited government and it produced the greatest efflorescence of not just prosperity, but peace and social harmony, at least for a hundred years or so, um, that had ever been seen in the world. So this is an example, and increasingly more of the world, Northern Europe, Southern Europe, Eastern Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, increasingly more parts of the world coming to appreciate the value of these ideas. And there's a book I read a few years ago by two Ivy League professors complaining that libertarian ideas are, quote, astonishingly widespread in American culture. They wrote a whole book on why you shouldn't believe in individual rights, and then they said, but you go out and you interview Americans and they just keep coming back to this idea that they have some rights, some freedom. They don't seem to understand that they don't have rights and freedoms, astonishingly widespread in American culture, and we do not do a good enough job of connecting with that concept. Um, I've written some about the libertarian vote with my colleague David Kirby. If you ask me how many libertarians are there in America, I can give you answers ranging from maybe 100,000 to 100 million, um, and I have good data for each one. Depends on how narrowly you, you define it. Uh, David Kirby and I did some survey research, polling research, and said, well, 15 to 20 percent of the American people hold ideas that we consider basically libertarian. On the other hand, I said earlier, you know, um, if you're fiscally conservative and socially liberal, then you don't fit into the Republican box, you don't fit into the Democratic box, and you're 
You're leaning in a libertarian direction on both aspects of that, so that makes you kind of libertarian. We did a, we did a poll. We asked an online polling uh, service, Do you, would you describe yourself as fiscally conservative and socially liberal? 59% said yes. The majority of Americans think they're fiscally conservative and socially liberal. That ought to give us something to work with. Now, we also thought, well, let's find out if you use the word libertarian, you're not going to get a number like that. If you go out and just ask people, are you liberal, conservative, libertarian, you're going to get a small number. But if you say, would you describe yourself as fiscally conservative and socially liberal, also known as libertarian? 44% will still say, yes, that describes me. Even when we throw in this word that they probably a lot of people don't even know, libertarian. So I thought that's interesting, which is why we enjoy a lot of freedom in America. Indeed, I would argue, I get a lot of pushback on this, but I would argue that America is more free on balance than ever before. And that is thanks to the founders and the constitution they gave us and the cantankerous individualist, free enterprising, revolutionary, don't tread on me people who make up this country. But we've always got the Hillary's and Bernie's on the left and the Huckabee's and Trump's on the right who think they could run our own lives better than we can, which is why the founders also told us that eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. I want to move toward concluding by quoting something my friend Brian Doherty said in his wonderful book, Radicals for Capitalism, The History of the Modern Libertarian Movement. And that is a sort of double-pronged thing. Libertarian ideas are radical. They go to the root of the question of what powers and rights does the state have over the individual. And yet, they are deeply rooted in American and Western civilization, which now runs on approximately libertarian principles. Now, I said appro he said approximately. Not perfectly libertarian principles, but approximately libertarian principles. And the reason for that is something libertarians have a right to be proud of. We have been fighting ignorance, superstition, privilege, and power for many centuries. But we have to keep doing it. It is to those libertarian ideas and those libertarian people that we owe the best parts of our civilization. More than a lot of libertarians want to acknowledge, we live in a world of freedom and progress. We have extended the promises of the Declaration of Independence, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness to people to whom they had long been denied. And around the world today, more people in more countries than ever before in history enjoy religious freedom, personal freedom, democratic governance, the freedom to own and trade property, the chance to start a business, equal rights, civility, respect, a higher standard of living, and a longer life expectancy. War, disease, violence, slavery, and inhumanity have been dramatically reduced, and it is libertarian ideas and liberty-minded people who have made that happen. I was asked once by some skeptics what the most important libertarian accomplishment ever was, and I thought for a minute and said the abolition of slavery. Okay, they said, name another. I thought the abolition of slavery was pretty good. <laughs> I thought that if you had the abolition of slavery on your resume, you were ready to meet your maker. But they said, name another. So I thought a little more carefully, and I said, bringing power under the rule of law. That was the fundamental libertarian achievement. 
but it is incomplete. It is what the levelers and John Locke and the American founders and Frederick Douglass fought for. It's what the protesters in 1989 fought for. It's what Rand Paul filibustered for. It's what our friends in Russia and China and Egypt and Venezuela and Iran fight for in circumstances so much more challenging than ours that we can barely comprehend it. It is what we fight for, and that is why it's always a great time to be a libertarian. Thank you very much. I believe we have a little time for questions, if people have any questions. Right here, are we bringing mics around? Or? Oh, I can, yeah. All right. <laughs> Well, I do think it's historical, um, and it's not that old a thing, because in, when the terms left and right originated, libertarians were clearly on the left. If, if we held our ideas back in the early 19th century, late 18th century, we would have been on the left wing of the liberals, um, wanting to push further and further toward constraining government, um, opening up markets, markets not monopoly, uh, uh, merit not status, um, science, not uh, the elimination of independent thought, um, all those things. And then, after the rise of communism, libertarians and conservatives found themselves both opposed to communism and also opposed to the rise of the welfare state in the United States. So that made early libertarians in the, I mean, there have been classical liberals from a long time. But in the late 19th century, early 20th century, classical liberalism really faded as a philosophy. So there weren't many people. We can point to individual names, but there weren't very many of them. Um, you know, Mises and Hayek, who after all lived in Austria back then, and over here there was H.L. Mencken and Albert J. Nock and a few people, but not many libertarians. When libertarianism started to reemerge during and after World War II, um, libertarians saw communism and the welfare state as the big threats, especially since National Socialism, which was, after all, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, uh, was being defeated. So communism and the welfare state. So libertarians and conservatives tend to be uh, together on that. And libertarians were more anti-communist and more anti-socialist and welfare state than many of the conservatives. So that gave them a uh, an appearance of being far right. Um, to me, far right clearly implies things other than libertarian, um, but I understand why some liberals and journalists see it that way. And there is the current fact that the 
political leaders who are generally called libertarian, Ron Paul, Rand Paul, even Justin Amash, people like that, um, tend to be perceived with reason as on the right wing of the Republican Party. Even though Ron Paul, for instance, was against the drug war, um, he still held a lot of views in common with the right, including some social issues like immigration, where um, he was not quite what I would think libertarians ought to be. Um, Rand Paul has been less forthright on the drug war than his father and therefore is even more perceived as being sort of on the far right, the Freedom Caucus in the House. Some people call that a libertarian caucus, but in fact, you know, it's strongly pro-drug war, anti-gay marriage, all of that, but they're very anti-Obamacare, overspending, things like that, although they did manage to reconcile themselves to the $500 billion budget increase that they just passed. Um, so there have been all those connections, and to a great extent, Libertarians have never been perceived as prioritizing anti-war or civil liberties or police abuse, any of those things. The, the drug issue, I think libertarians are identified with. And so, you know, I had a conservative once tell me that his perception was that uh, libertarians were just gay conservatives. <laughs> the, other, the other thing is, you know, conservatives who smoke pot. Um, we don't oppose the drug war because we want to smoke pot. We oppose it because it interferes with people's individual choices. Some of us do want to smoke pot. Some don't. Um, I, I know a libertarian writer. Uh, first time I met him, we were both in line at a, uh, a cocktail uh, hour. And when I got to the front just ahead of him, I said I wanted a Coke. And he said, he knew who I was. I didn't know who he was. He said, Coke? I would have thought libertarians would drink whiskey. I turned and looked at him. I said, libertarians drink whatever they want. <laughs> um, but there's that sort of perception that if you're a libertarian, you must like guns. I don't like guns. Uh, you must like pot. I don't like pot. Um, and yet it hasn't overcome the right-wing association. I think Students for Liberty has done a good job of trying to fix that. You know, they changed don't tread on me to don't tread on others or don't tread on anyone. That's a good reformulation of liberalism. Um, and they had the president of the ACLU here today. I think that's good. Unfortunately, she's going to go back to her office and tell her that no one came to her speech. So that's not going to do a lot for her perception of who libertarians are. But it was a good idea to have her here. And we've had her at a couple of Cato events, too. Sorry, that was a long answer, but it is a big thing on my mind. Yes? I, I feel with this hyper radicalization of the left that we're seeing some more moderate Democrats perhaps thinking twice about being on that side. Is, do you think that there's some way that libertarians can maybe reach out to these people who, you know, maybe they're not on the fiscal conservative thing, but they're definitely socially liberal? You know, what is the way that we can reach out to them and maybe bring them to, you know, the I'd love to, but are there, in fact, Democrats who are disillusioned? Hi. Hello. <laughs> okay. Glad to hear it. Um, pardon me? I don't think we should be limiting Well, that, that's a good thing. And as far as I'm concerned, that is obviously the liberal position. Um, it, and it is kind of shocking that there has been a change in a lot of ways in on that issue. I actually asked a high-ranking ACLU officer last week, is the ACLU still solid on free speech? 
And I was told, yes, the chairman of the board is, the president is, the executive director is, the board of directors is. However, 200 young staff members of the ACLU signed a statement saying we really shouldn't be defending the freedom of speech of people like Milo Yiannopoulos. Now, 200 is out of 1,300. They have a big organization. But, and, and what I was told was, it's really an age thing. It's not even, if you look at the list of names, it's not even divided so much by, age, uh, by race or gender, it's, it's age. That's a problem, because if the younger ACLU members are not strong on free speech, there's a complication here on the free speech issue, too. There are groups like FIRE and the New Speech First that are being recognized as strong free speech proponents, but there are also groups like the vehemently anti-gay Alliance Defending Freedom who go around claiming that they're defenders of free speech. What they're defenders of is non-liberal speech, conservative speech, the kind of speech that tends to get censored. I have no confidence that they would speak up for the rights of left-wing speakers if campuses were dominated by conservatives. And now the alt-right, the white nationalists, are talking about themselves as free speech martyrs. And let me just say, I have, you want to reach out to moderate Democrats? A good way is not to bring people like Milo Yiannopoulos to your campus on your podium. And I have seen college Republicans do this. I have even seen one or two libertarian campus chapters. And when I have asked them, what the hell are you doing bringing Milo Yiannopoulos to your podium to engage in racial provocation, their excuse is, we're defending free speech. No, you don't defend free speech by putting the Nazis on your podium. Milo's not quite a Nazi. The early ACLU, when they defended the free speech rights of communists, did not put the communists on the podium except to explain how they had been censored. They defended their rights. When the ACLU defended the right of the Nazis to march through Skokie, Illinois, they didn't put the Nazis on the podium. They put the civil libertarians on the podium to talk about free speech. So I trust no one in here has thought about doing that. Um, I would like to see more evidence that there are Democrats and liberals who are uh, coming in that direction, and the more we can talk about things like criminal justice reform, and you know, one of the things that we, for the past really 18 months, have been trying to talk about to people on the left is, we told you that if you gave the president and the federal government all this power, someday you would be sorry. Are you sorry now? And yet, I swear, they still can't get that point. They voted to give the president more surveillance power a couple of weeks ago. This president would have been one thing if they said, we're giving the president more surveillance power and this law goes into effect January 20th, uh, 2021, um, gambling on defeating Trump. But, but they didn't. They gave the president more power. So we haven't succeeded at that. One of the things that I think has happened is not just maybe hyper-radicalization, but hyper-partisanship. So we just, we've got this bifurcation of people who get their news from the right, people who get their news from the left, and a handful of libertarians consciously trying to talk to both sides and to get information from both sides. I get the Washington Post, my partner 
sometimes picks up the Washington Times because it's free in his office, and he'll bring it home, and I'll say, okay, well, now we'll be able to figure out what's going on because we have the Washington Post view and we have the Washington Times view. But the truth is the Washington Post has 100 times as many reporters as the Washington Times, so you're going to get more news in there. Um, yes, we should reach out that way, but other than talking about the issues I've mentioned, I'm not sure exactly how we do that. Yes? You know, in a lot of places, uh, economic reform has only happened when you really did run out of money. Margaret Thatcher says the problem with socialism is eventually you run out of other people's money. That's how it happened in New Zealand. That's how a round of reform happened in Argentina and even Mexico. Um, and obviously then the countries coming out of communism who started with basically no money, like Estonia. Um, we have not reached that state, and we keep warning that we've built up $200 trillion in unfunded liabilities, and yet, because we're the, nation, we're, the, we're the world's reserve currency, we have the strongest economy, we seem to be able to keep rolling this over and over, and it's a drag on the economy, but we're still growing. We haven't been able to convince people about this. Um, I do not worry that automation is going to leave us all without jobs. People have been saying that since the beginning of capitalism, the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. And indeed, the whole point of economic growth is to destroy jobs. Used to have 80% of people worked as farmers. Now it's 2% and probably only needs to be 1%. Um, Manufacturing is also seeing a decline in the number of people employed, although more manufacturing output. So all of that is the very definition of economic growth, and we clearly are better off. There are people who perhaps voted for Trump because they perceived that their economy, their economic status had declined because certain kinds of jobs had been destroyed. The truth is, and you didn't ask about truth, you asked about political appeal, so those are separate things. The, I know. So the truth is that we're pretty much at full employment. We went through a recession, but now we're pretty much at full employment. There are jobs. On average, they pay better than they used to. We clearly have a higher standard of living in terms of size of our houses, the appliances we have, the fact that I have all the information in the history of the world right here in my breast pocket right now. Um, all of those things are better. When you hear that the middle class is shrinking, you know what the reality is? The middle class is shrinking because they moved into the upper middle class. So you've still got some number of people below the middle class. And then you've got a broad middle class which is somewhat less broad now because the upper middle class has gotten bigger. But some people's relative status has fallen. They used to be well-paid union workers, and now they're not, and if they're of a certain age, it's difficult to become software coders or whatever. Um, and so their relative status may have fallen. There's also an angle that is mixed up there, which is it's possible that they perceive that their status has fallen 
while the status of people they used to look down on has risen. And I mean particularly people of color. It used to be, even if you were a poor white, you still got to look down on all the non-whites. And that's not true anymore. And I think for some people, that is a difficult thing to accept. So it's not the automation and everything itself that I worry about. Relative status is an issue, and it probably helps parties like Marine Le Pen in France, um, and certainly, I think, helped Trump here. We have good economic answers to that. Um, you mentioned UBI. You mentioned the cost of entitlements. Um, if UBI is going to cost less, then it's presumably going to deliver, on average, fewer benefits. Because the reality is the transfer state is not all that inefficient in terms of overhead. Most of what's in the transfer state goes in checks to people. So if you got rid of welfare and housing subsidies and Medicaid and unemployment insurance and in some formulations even Social Security and Medicare, you would save a ton of money and you could turn it into UBI, but you're not actually going to save much money if you want people to continue to get the same standard of living at public expense. And then the problem I worry about is that we will never actually get the trade that, that some libertarians talk about, that we get rid of everything and replace it with UBI. Plus, if we do, and it goes to everybody, it's a universal basic income, then aren't politicians going to start bidding for raising the UBI? Um, and a lot of voters are going to perceive that they would, even the taxes that go up, they're going to benefit because they don't pay much in taxes. So I don't think there's an easy way out of that. And I think better answers fiscally are things like transforming Social Security and Medicare into funded plans, you know, privatized Social Security. We could privatize Medicare in the same way. But that's a big political up, uh, uphill battle, too. And so it may be that until we actually hit the wall, like New Zealand did, like Mexico did, um, we're going to have a great deal of trouble um, uh, solving that, that fiscal problem. Okay, I have to stop. Thank you all for being here. In the final installment of my travelogue, I was in a bad mood. <laughs> I had arrived at the conference on Saturday afternoon at 2 and got set up and realized that all the money that I had spent on promotional materials was not really worth it, and I had missed most of the conference. So I was debating whether or not I should just stay or go. I was on my way outside in the freezing, uh, cold to hot and juicy, it's supposed to be a really great Cajun place, but it was an hour and a half wait. So now I'm going to a place called Harry's Pub. So I hope that uh, I get treated right. Um, uh, Tad gave me a great suggestion that I think I'm going to uh, take him up on, and that is I'm going to go look for Comet Ping Pong and save those children. So in case I go missing, I love you all. Just so you know what happened. So, anyways, if you don't want to, if you didn't watch the last, I'll tell you kind of what happened since I got here. So, I got here about one, one thirty, two o'clock, and it was, uh, it was. 
I was sweating. I know you're going to find this hard to believe. <laughs> so I took a shower because I felt gross and uh, got my suit. Uh, and those of you who know me know that I'm not a huge suit fan. And went down. Uh, first I got the banner. Then I found where the table was. Then I came back, took a shower, got a suit. So I got down to the floor about 2.30. So the the radio row was kind of in the back of the exposition hall. So there's a downstairs where there's the expo hall with all the sponsors, like fee and everything else. And then upstairs is where all the speakers are. So by the time I got here, essentially, and they said 40% of the people that were supposed to attend didn't show up because of the weather. Uh, so it would have been a poppin', uh, as the kids say. So got down to the radio row, and the only table that was left was, like, way off in the back. And it looks amazing. I should I, – I've wadded it up. I had basically – the only way I can get it home, it's this mat. I mean, it's the size of this bed. It's too big for the table. So big. <laughs> but it looks amazing. It looks really good. Um, but it's going to have all kinds of... It's kind of a... Let's see here. Like a cheap vinyl, I guess you'd say. You couldn't take it outside necessarily, but it's... Uh, but it's, it looks really nice. So it would have been great. Had everything gone to plan, it would have been awesome. Uh, and had I gotten here last night, I could have gotten the sign set up and all the stuff out and would have gotten everything promoted and I would have been happy. So from a promotion standpoint, it was a total bust. And I was really looking forward to like being seen and getting a lot of interviews and talking to, uh, you know, the Matt Welsh's, Nick Gillespie's, Dave Rubens of the world. So I can put I can put We Are Libertarians on their radar. So by the time I got here, got everything set up, I'm just miserable, and I still I don't think I've had lunch. So I'm I'm gonna go eat dinner, lunch and dinner. So that's part of probably why I was so cranky, because I it was like three three thirty, sat th through the ACLU thing, did an interview with the Liberty meme guys, and they were really great. They were funny. Um, Gave Aaron Ebert shit, and uh, that's a funny interview. And uh, one of the guys, like halfway through, just was bored with it, so he started playing on his phone. It's, it was like hanging out with Aaron. It was amazing. So I, I like, I'm sitting there and I'm just getting more angry because I'm like, I've spent all this money to come here, a lot more money than I planned on spending because of all the contingency plans, like three, $400 extra because of the weather. Um, and it was a stretch to come here already. So I've spent all this money. I've gone through all this hassle to get here. And by the time I get here, everybody who's gone through the place that I'm supposed to be will have already gone through it. So the promotion's not gonna happen. I'm not gonna get to talk to any of the people I wanted to talk to. And I'm just pissed. And like I was in such a like good mood over the because there's nothing you can do about the weather. You go to you get stuck in a train station, and like I had my little friends that you, I introduced you to, and like we were all hanging out, keeping each other sane, and, and it was a good time. And so I just kind of didn't know anybody here, and just not happy <laughs> that's why so i called american airlines about 3 30 and asked about flights to indianapolis tonight and i was just gonna leave i was just like done and 
then I was like, well, I'm here. Why don't I just blow the conference off? It's a loss anyways. And just go sightsee. And I was like, ah, but I'm really tired. Uh, so I'm not going to do that. And so I just decided I changed out of the suit. I put on, you know, a T-shirt and my khakis and my tennis shoes. And, like, literally everybody else is in a suit. Everyone here is in a suit. Everyone. So I look so... I mean, I don't look bad, but uh, I definitely, like, got some looks because I wasn't in a suit at that point. But it was 4 o'clock and the conference ended at 6 and I just didn't give a shit. Uh, And... Um, it's funny because if you just are yourself and stop trying to put on pretense, like you attract the same kind of people. So like I ended up, I think that's when I talked to the meme guys, actually. I think I talked to them later. Then I ran into somebody that I talked to all the time. So my grandparents, uh, lived in St. Augustine, Florida, and we used to go to St. Augustine all the time because we had a condo as kids down there. And she goes to Flagler College. So we just started talking on Instagram and she's here. We finally met up. Uh, she's not in a suit. She's like, I fucking hate this. And it is, it's partially like everybody, they didn't want kids showing up and whatever and looking like bums and wearing tie dye and embarrassing. There's no media here other than me. Like literally I am the only media that's here. Uh, and so they didn't want like that bad image, but instead what they've done is they've told everybody to wear suits. So everybody has their black suit on the one that their mom bought them in junior year of high school because they had to go to a wedding or a funeral and that's their suit. And so everybody here is super uncomfortable and they all just all look like young Republicans. And it's like, if you allowed some free expression, that'd be great. Um, so, so I looked at a place, but I didn't even give a shit because when I'm comfortable, I don't care. Like, like I was so uncomfortable in the suit and that's probably why I was so grumpy. So I interviewed the meme guys. I get the ACLU president audio. She was like super happy that I was recording it. She was super sweet. She's a really nice lady. Total leftist, but really nice lady. Um, then I got the David Bowes thing. Um, and I talked to that friend, Kelly, who is a student, and she was really interesting. So I have like a nice little show that I can put together, and uh, I ended up running into Chris, a uh, guy that I worked for at the Advocates. He's a billionaire, and I put the We Are Libertarians card in his hand. I'm not joking. He's a literal billionaire. And I was like, he's like, what are you up to? Because he basically funded my job at the Advocates, and I you know, gave him the card and said, here's what I'm up to. And he you know, seemed real receptive and said he'd check it out. Uh, the trip down with that guy who was uh, – I think I – I think I put it in the – I don't think I put it in a video, but I I rode down. Uh, last night, this guy walked up, and he was just very friendly, very chatty. And uh, we started talking about where we were going, and he said he'd pay half the rental car if uh, I, he could bum a ride with me. And so he did. It turns out he was the issues director, basically the policy director of what they called the issues director then, for Ford and HW's campaign in 1980. And most of the policies that he wrote for HW got enacted under Reagan. Uh, didn't work for Reagan then, worked on, in help put together. He was on the transition team for Bush in 92 and worked some there. He's on like the Council on Foreign Relations. He's, uh, he's friends with everybody. Like 
has worked for all these presidents, worked for all these Republicans. And if he's telling the truth, he's one of the most well-connected people I've ever met. Left a really good impression on him. Uh, we traded cards and talked about doing a podcast, you know, from the swamp. It's easily verifiable to make sure that he. But I don't know. He seemed legit and super wealthy. So, like, I've had a good trip in that I've met a couple of rich guys, uh, which is really the best you can hope for. Um, got some nice social media snaps. So it didn't turn into a total loss. I got, I've got a show out of it. Um, I was hoping to get more, like, I was hoping to get like 10 different speeches. So it's one of those situations where the reality of how you've built it up in your mind ends up being so drastically different from what you expected it to be that it ends up like you just get upset about it. So I was tantruming, and that's when I was going to go home. So so I didn't, uh, hanging out with Kelly, talking with her, and that's been fun. Now I'm going to go eat at Harry's Pub, uh, and I'm going to hopefully that hope that they treat me as nice as Harry does. So get uh, I leave here in the morning. I have to get up at like 5 a.m., get to the airport, flight's around 8, and then I should be home around 10 a.m., and I'm looking forward to it. I listen. Here's what you have to understand about me. I am not a traveler. Like Jeremiah Mora will testify, I don't like to travel to Newcastle. Tad once said that if you want to hang out with Spangle, you have to go within a one mile radius of his apartment, and it's not totally inaccurate. Um, I'm a homebody, and I like all my stuff, and I like my routines, and I just get very out of place when my routines are upset. And, like, this whole week I'm going to be cranky because my weekend wasn't normal. I don't know. I'm, I'm a baby. I'm very pampered. Like, my backpack uh, – I don't know if I can zoom in on this, but, yeah, my backpack is jam-packed with all the podcast equipment. Um, this is jam-packed, too, because I packed every creature comfort. Like, here's my Bose uh, Bluetooth speaker. Uh, I brought literally every piece of podcast podcasting equipment including giant headphones that I thought I might need. And you know what? Like, I just needed to bring this and one attachment. And I give this advice to podcasters all the time, which is like, just get the H6, get a little pair of headphones, and get one of the attachments, which are in here. And I didn't do that. I brought all this mess. I mean, this is a really thick backpack, and it, you can see it's jam-packed. So I just overpack and... Uh, yeah, it's. I've got uh, some snot rags. What's this? LOL, this is my boarding pass. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, it, it, it wasn't a good trip, but it wasn't a bad trip. Um, like, it just wasn't what I expected. And so that's what I think was what was really like grating on me. It was the first time like you're you're in a hotel and like we're having dinner and it's fun and you're laughing about how absurd everything is, but then like you get here and then you realize the reality of it and you're just like uh so um but it was it was a different trip than I expected. So I ended up having fun. I had a good time like uh, I will never forget how ridiculous this entire trip was. 
And uh, it's almost as ridiculous as a trip that I took with Ed Coleman to Memphis. It's probably more ridiculous, but Ed's so ridiculous that it was outrageous. Like, he's such a... But, uh, yeah, I got got stranded once before in Memphis with a candidate of ours who is... I I don't even want to go into it because I'll say bad things. (laughs) But, yeah, no, it was... Definitely, Jer's right. Planes, trains, and automobiles. I took every single one of those to get here. Uh, it was a struggle. I mean, it was like a struggle. Like, you're f- scratching and clawing, and the adrenaline's pumping, and it's kind of exciting because you're, like, trying to figure out how, to, how you're going to get here to there and all that. Uh, and I got here, and then uh, I got a show out of it, and had I had some fun. So, what else can you do? Now I'm going to go pop this zit that I've got in my face and eat food for the first time today, really. I don't think I've eaten. I mean, I had like, I had two pe- two slices of canned peaches for breakfast and that's all I've had today. So no wonder I'm shitty. I eat a lot of food, FYI. So, all right, well, I will, uh, I want to thank everybody for coming along on this journey. I hope you're in- entertained by my misfortunes uh, as much as I was.